Hi everybody I'm and here. welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, that is Chris Sackness, and we have a very special episode for you today over uh, Michael Heiser's architectural wonder city. Um, because Chris, you got to go to, and we, we won't jump right in, but I wanted at the top to hook them with, with this, right? Yeah, yeah, no, this is special because it, it, it is in a remote part of, of the world, so to speak. It's, uh, it's two hours drive from Las Vegas. Uh, only six people are allowed per day and that they're not going to be open every day. So that puts some real limitations on the actual physical experience, uh, which I'm looking forward to sharing. And it, it really, uh, it's a very, very intense physical thing. You're really talking about in, you know, walking six miles to really get, you know, what's going on. And that's so independent of the, uh, the driving time and the logistical, you know, considerations and the cost, $150, which I think is, ends up being, you know, very reasonable. Yeah. Uh, it's a full day. And that's just the physical, you know, time footprint, not the psychic one. So, but we'll get to that in a, so, in a little bit. How yeah. are you I'm this, looking uh, forward. this Tuesday afternoon? Well, I'll, I'll uh, something uh, turned out really uh, good just before you called. And I'm going to share that because the, the morning itself started off in a really frustrating and annoying and uh, not respectful and just uh, not quite stomach churning, but it was it was it wasn't comfortable. Uh, but then I got the news, and creative people will will really dig this. I think there is there are a few things that is satisfying is when you recommend a title to someone for a work, a major work of art or a book, say. And they take your advice, you know, whether it's something you've heard in what they've said or, what, or that something completely off your own bat. They've gone, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So I recommended to a painter friend in Africa. And at some point, we've got to do a little feature on him because his, his story is fascinating. But the title I've suggested uh, for his first sort of fine arts book and he started off, when I first met him in Cape Town, he was living with his family under a truck to stay out of the downpour. But the title I've suggested is Painting with Knives in Malawi. That's fantastic. Isn't I love that it. nice? Yeah. And he is a knife painter. And uh, that is no longer because that was the only thing he can afford. I'm pleased to say that I have played a part in, in gaining a little bit of success and therefore traction for uh, his art himself and, and his really amazingly uh, persistent and just absolutely uh, hardy family. So that's that's where things are at. I'm pleased I about that. I went to my very first estate sale this weekend I've ne I'd never been, oh, wow. to one, but my mother-in-law was in town and she wanted to go. So we we get there, and people, of course, are carting off uh, 
bookshelves and couches and all sorts of things. But the I was walking through the 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 remnants of this person's life, and I found the experience to be very profound. I went went out to his shed where he had a bookshelf. He had the entire Left Behind series of sort of Christian eschatological uh, rapture fiction. I don't know if you remember these books, but they sold millions and millions of copies in the 90s. Um, He had a copy of Bill Cosby's Fatherhood that looked like it was bought when it came out. (laughs) Wow. And then I hit backyard. He had some some really great uh, DeWalt hand saws and buzz saws uh, selling for a bit too much, although everything was 50% off. But I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you would have bought at, you know, Sears or Montgomery Ward. In fact, I think it was purchased at Montgomery Ward. I think there was a stamp on it, if I remember correctly. And the tools looked great. There were uh, well-made leather saddles in the backyard. Uh, it seemed that to be that there was a chicken coop back there at some time. The chickens had probably been found a new, either a new home or they got sold off to KFC. But the, there was this thing that I picked up and I, I had no idea what it was. It had a wooden handle and it had concentric circles with teeth around it, right? So basically it looked like somebody had taken a large saw and kind of looped it almost like a hairbrush, right? It was in the design of a hairbrush, but these like sharp brown rusted metal teeth. And I asked oh, I asked wow. them what it was and apparently it's an old school brush for horses. That's how you would you would brush horses would be with this kind of rough there we go. Yeah. A curry yeah. cone. Never seen one of yeah. those before in my life. There were old, dirty baseballs. There was an entire room that was just Christmas decorations. I took a picture of it. I'll send it to you. But it was, it was striking to walk into the, the Christmas room of a dead person, <laughs> and all of the stuff that they had accumulated over the years and kept. Santa Clauses and little porcelain elves and things to hang on your door and uh, I didn't buy anything I couldn't I was almost going to buy a little a miniature Luger cap gun I just couldn't bring myself to do it though I just didn't I didn't want to take anything from the house it, it struck me as a, a, a powerful experience that came out of nowhere because when I woke up that day, I didn't know I was going to go to an estate sale. That wasn't on my list of things to do. But happy I did it all the same. Oh, well, I was there. I was there with you. That was a great description. Uh, I have two thoughts about uh, what to do next. you can get really, really into estate sales and their ilk. Uh, and it is a wonderful lost exploring treasure hunt. Uh, kind of like orienteering, you know, it's great to do with uh, alone. It's great to do with a partner for sure. 
it is really, really uh, something cool to get into, you know, as an ongoing practice. But in this case, you've had such a rich psychic experience, and you can tell that from your the depth and quality of the, the fidelity of the description. Uh, you need to <coughs> let that settle mm-hmm. and, and sit for a while and not race out to another one, you know? That's the key. You need to just let, it, let the first one that's really hit you settle in. We need to do this with a lot of experiences, I think. We, we, you know, we, we just process things or try to too quickly. And it just, it's like the difference between how food might taste one way and then if you put the same stuff into a blender and it just doesn't, yeah, you know, it's, it's all the same, you know, chemical stuff, but it just doesn't taste the same. And we need to let things taste and just, you know, be and settle. But I'm really, I, I think that's wonderful. I think you, you need to write some of those things down because it's just, it was rich. It was yeah, now that I travel think about log. it, I'm definitely going to take your advice and not brush out this weekend to another one. But that might make for a cool Lost Explorers segment because that is sort of, you know, archaeology in its own way. Oh no! It, it it no qualifications needed here. It absolutely is archaeology of an extremely important kind, and the fact that that we can look at that word and that idea and that practice of archaeology with a different time frame, change the pace of that, change the perspective, because you change the pace, and. Suddenly, there's an enormous amount of interesting stuff that goes just completely by most people. But it's also stuff that may give us some real clues. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. It's a treasure well, I look hunt, forward for sure. to those segments, you know? Because I'm definitely doing it from now on. The, um, your band for today, did, did you, you have one of those for us? I, I listen. Yes, I, I, I may have ended up in a in a good mood, as I am now, but I, I was grumpy earlier, and so this has a, a kind of a hard edge to it. But I make no apology because I think they're, uh, it, they have an idea. The band is named Centipedes in a Blender, and. Uh, their genre is savage aloha they are a punk deconstruction of hawaiian music from don ho to ukuleles and the torchlit poolside festivities of second-rate resorts and an enormous uh, you know, influence in 1950s and 60s films, you know. So they're breaking that down. Their first album is called Cannibal Luau, and it features a crescendo moment of uh, what is in Hawaiian or Polynesian terms ancient gong that ritualists, you know, in terms of the ritual, must be struck with the still beating heart of a mid-range insurance salesperson Dude, from Terrible, I, Indiana. We are. So I called you right when you were about to call me today. We must be on the same wavelength because the split second before you said the word cannibal, 
I pictured this band's album cover as being a riff on the infamous poster from uh, Cannibal Holocaust with the woman impaled through the mouth. But it's right. in this case, I was thinking woman, but you mentioned the businessman. In this case, it's the businessman, but instead of a, you know just a regular pole, it's a tiki torch, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. You're yeah. You're right. You, look, you're as with me on this mm-hmm. as I was mm-hmm. at the estate sale. Yes. This is great. This is what. This is what communication should be. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, there there are two short ones because the first one takes the form of a question, and as I've said before, I think aphorisms can take the form of questions. So, are you an insulator or are you a conductor? I think that is a real. Uh, crossroads to negotiate for us all and then my second one is light travels sound travels soul travels do more soul traveling and i i kind of i kind of like that shift from you know the objective flat statement to the personified responsible you know mm-hmm. you can apply that sort of yeah soul travel action. and also the original mm-hmm. are you a they go together don't they because it's you know are you an insulator or a conductor you know they do, yeah they kind of thank you they kind of do i'm pleased that they do that because that that wasn't how they necessarily came to mind but uh yeah, yeah they do go together you absolutely you want to be a, a, a prism you don't want to be that, uh, what's that substance, the blackest substance ever made? Have you seen pictures of this paint? It's so alarming. It's, uh, the bla- it, it looks like a... Yeah, it like is. I, I, I do, I do remember. Like they painted a bowling ball with this color, and there's a guy in a lab coat holding it, and it just looks like he's holding the void with a capital V. It's, it's, it's alarming. Yeah, yeah. It's very disturbing. Oh yeah, look, I'm I'm so into, you know, these perceptual realities that are measurable and, and kind of undeniable by the Richard Dawkins tight ass people of the world. And yet the psychological impact of them is is just it instantly goes to the metaphysical. It instantly goes to mythic, magical uh, terrain, you know, and yeah. there's no denying that. <laughs> But there's, you know, the uh, the Dawkinsians, Dawkinsians, just can't deal with that, you know, and and yet they can't deny that either. I'm I'm picturing the Dawkinsians going door to door, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, but they're just they're just there to make sure that everybody in the household has accepted that life is meaningless and that it's all chaos. You know, like just sit down and be like, let hold on, let so the universe works like a big clock. If there's anything that we worship, it's the clock, not the <laughs> clock maker, but the clock itself. But yeah. it's also chaos, and you're just like, oh my god, get off my doorstep, bring the Mormons back. I need, I need. <laughs> at least the Mormons are nice and wear cute bicycle helmets. These guys are all dressed 
with elbow patches and shaggy beards and horn rim glasses. The ma- the male librarian look, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Somehow oh that's all yeah, yeah, just that's enough. yeah, enough said. Enough said. You nailed all that right. one. Well You nailed that. Are you ready for your Yeah, you told me it was gonna get me in trouble challenge? Well, I, I think yeah, I think it's a way of addressing some uh, some of the individual issues that f- form a kind of field or syndrome of our current moment, and uh, I hope that they resolve themselves because I think they're causing us all a lot of distress. But I want you to imagine uh, that you are designing the world for. Uh, perhaps the real, you know, the world, or you could be writing a television show. Uh, but you have to, it's a complete world that we're, we're looking for. Even if you do it in microcosm, like your town, okay? Stick to, you know, but that's your choice entirely. But the premise is we want to see externally, physically embodied what people would look like if they could look as they ideally or dream they would like to be. What would happen if people transformed physically into that? What would, what, what would society look like? What would walking around your tent or anywhere look like? How would things change? Okay, I like it. That's your That's challenge. Good. Perfect. Well, I don't want to spend any more time running my mouth. I want to hear about the city. I've been anxious to hear about that, and I specifically requested that you saved it for this, because I want to hear it in real time with the listeners. So, take us on a journey, Chris. Okay. Well, Michael Heiser is 77 now. I think at one point I I sort of got him a bit older. He's 77 now. I first heard of him uh, through the earth artist Robert Smithson, who uh, created the spiral jetty, which extends into the Great Salt Lake. Smithson was a great writer, and he popularized land art in the 60s and 70s. And Heiser was the one who introduced him to the West, the American West. Smithson was from New Jersey. And Heiser just could not get past the fact that Smithson uh, got a lot of attention for Spiral Jetty, and really a kind of blood feud uh, developed. Smithson sadly died in an airplane uh, crash over Amarillo, Texas. He was surveying uh, a project called Amarillo Ramp. And I think, it, although tragic, it is kind of beautiful that he died doing something that he really loved to do. And uh, I just think airplane crash deaths are kind of beautiful in a way. But in any case, Heiser, all these years later, having survived and survived a lot of ups and downs, including many physical injuries that had real repercussions for his health and well-being, he still is angry at Robert Smithson. And I think that says something important about uh, Heiser. And it's hard to separate discussions of city, his creation, which he was working on for more than 50 years, 
And in addition, the ranch that he was living on is immediately adjacent to the city site, uh, immediately adjacent. So he was really there for half a century. Uh, and then there's the question of the there. Um, but let me rewind just a little bit and give some context. This creation, Heiser is now relocated to New York. He's been living there on and off over the years, but prim primarily in Nevada on the site. Um, he has turned the management of this over to a foundation called the Triple Ought Foundation. And they are managing all aspects of the tours, which allow only six people. You drive to Alamo, Nevada, which is <laughs> a pretty small town, but it's, it's not completely insignificant. The high school mascot is the Panthers. Uh, it's a fairly uh, strongly Mormon community, I think you could say, but there is cattle ranching. There's, there's quite an aquifer uh, there, and there are springs. So it's an un, it, there's more water around. There's also a huge national wildlife reserve. So that's where you meet. And the guy who's your driver is Ed currently. And Ed is so perfect. He's a tall uh, rancher who grew up in Alamo. He may or may not be more, I suspect he's, he, has, he has seven kids. But he's, uh, he's known Heiser for years and is only a little bit younger than Heiser. Uh, so he's kind of a strange, was sort of a strange, you know, river guide on this expedition. And then the uh, there were two there were two couples, uh, university people, College of Southern Nevada. One guy was the curator of the Neon Museum, which is a really cool museum in in downtown Vegas. Uh, and one I guess in something to do with satellites, uh, and. So it was a, a pretty cordial group, which you have to be because you're piled into an SUV. You know, this is not a tour bus thing. So it was really soft on that, you know, professional corporate hospitality thing. And that was so important because the slightest turn of that dial, and I think the whole thing would collapse. So that might be a starting point, just to turn it, just to, I wanted just to get you in the SUV and kind of get you there. But thinking about these very structural issues, this is my thematic point. We're talking about structure and design in a very fundamental way with the city creation. But there's also the structure of the getting there and who you're with and all of that kind of thing. Can you think of like where, you saw something or experienced something, and that was so important it almost eclipsed what the apparent subject of your attention was. I have was. this affliction with almost every important event in my life. I have this problem at times, even recording this podcast, because, you know, I show up to these things and I want to 
bring something to them and I want to have fun during them and this is my life this is my one life and I what if what if it doesn't go well <clears throat> and it always does so I've cooled it on that a little bit going to there was this really great hike that Rios and I went on in South Korea just outside of the city limits of Seoul in the mountains it's a very arduous hike up to this monastery that is home to the largest golden Buddha in East Asia and I remember being in the woods there walking up and getting to the top and encountering these three white protector dogs kind of mangy mutt looking things that would 100% bite you if instructed to do so they were not friendly dogs they weren't wagging their tails they were they were guarding the place and the site is unique because according to legend it's the spot where a dragon ascended into heaven and I remember looking out and kind of imagining that and having this really cool experience but nagging in the back of my brain thinking you know is am I is this the am I getting the full deal out of this right am I really here now which of course you know Alan Watts would tell you this takes you out of it right the whole thing could just fall apart by overanalyzing it long way of saying I get what you mean entirely you know I mean this is this is probably your one chance to see it um, and as a side note why six people besides that it's more than five and less than seven or is that um, <laughs> no, well, I think I mean I, I, I'm you you could say really you know it's that's the size of the SUV they uh, could buy. They do have two of them, so they have done more. I think it it uh, insofar as I understand it's Heiser's direction, and we're talking about. A hyper level of attention to detail and following a, a program uh, that that I'll get to in a second. Uh, I think he understood that uh, six people over that the footprint is is comfortable, and it would start to change the dynamics of it, the acoustics of it, the vision lines would change if there were more people. Um, and there's also the potential of because you're there on site for three hours at least at this time of, of year anyway uh, there's the dealing with people you know for that long that that's quite a long time to be on a tour I think with people you know so those two reasons are uh, but he, he I'm I'm absolutely assured that he has some very, very good reasoning behind this and maybe some diagrams, you know, and he's really thought about it because everything has been Even thought I about. I just thought of, a, you know? of an analogy to what you're talking about. Have you ever settled into a movie theater and everybody's spaced out perfectly and nobody's talking, everybody's quiet, and then about 10 minutes into the film, there are these latecomers that show up and they're on their phones and talking and you're like, yeah. and they sit right in front of you and you're like, fucking great. Like, that's, that's what could have happened on your tour, right? If there was one of those people. 
Well, this is why we, we might not be able to uh, cover all of the aspects of, of City in, in one episode because there are so many important ones, but I think you really connected some major dots in, in, your, in just understanding what you know my, my lead-in was about and really responding and getting that and kind of deepening and enriching as you do. Uh, the, the whole structural involvement of perception with any kind of experience, but certainly the heightened intentional experience of, of an art event of some kind. You know, it connects with also social expectations and social structuring. And we, we blur that line between the individual psychological and the heavily enforced, trained, managed, supervised, inherently structured uh, social kinds of perception. And if those aren't addressed by the creative forces behind the, the event, uh, you really, you're missing out on the whole point of what art might teach us in terms of breaking the spell of mm -hmm. assumptions, you know, and really looking at total context. I mean, that's, you know, there's always this sense of, of whether it's uh, a two-dimensional or, or three-dimensional work of the ideal viewing distance. And if you, if you don't then think, well, what's your ideal viewing distance, you know? If you don't invert it, then I'd say you haven't really had an, an artistic experience. And that's what you know, a lot of people miss out on. They are just tourists. And I think that Heiser's intention is very much to try to avoid mm. that tourist mentality and to be more of an explorer, you know? And I think that, that there is, um, this is one of the many, many contrasts when you get to actually walking around is that it feels simultaneously uh, very sterile and harsh in a sense and yet very soft and generous and welcoming uh, but the just to go back one step I, I will say that the drive there was very which is north and then a little bit uh, west so we're, we're talking not far away from area 51 which I'll have to get to uh, a little bit later uh, so it's right in uh, the center of, of Nevada and it's much more beautiful than a lot of people think Nevada can get Nevada can be just gorgeous depending on whether you like high desert or alpine environments but Often, and what has appealed to me is the fact that it was used in a lot of TV shows and science fiction things when I was a kid as, you know, another planet, the moon or Mars or whatever. <coughs> then the, the idea that the moon landing was faked was here. So I'm a, I'm a lover of the desolation and the light, you know, the, the changing of light as being the, the fundamental uh, organic sense you get first. The longer you're 
you know, you're in that environment, the more you see, more life you see, and you realize how you know deeply structured it is. But this was in a really beautiful cattle ranching valley, uh, and with some pretty intense mountains around it. So that was, for starters, a break with the expectation uh, that I had. And I'll say a little bit more about that in terms of aesthetics, because I think people know what I'm talking about. Before you get to the total sort of uh, Bonneville salt flat, black rock desert environment, um, which is where the Burning Man Festival is held just to the north, um, I mean, those landscapes, they're kind of like a dolly painting. Anything looks yeah. interesting if there, you know? That's kind of, painters know that, photographers know that. Anytime you want to suggest some sort of surrealist, uh, futuristic, uh, tribal mad, mad whatever, that environment is perfect. You, you do the same costuming, the same set design in a jungle environment, and it just doesn't work, you know? There's too much, too much information. Uh, so that was one of the expectations uh, that I was, that was the environment itself dis disabled for me. I was really grateful because I'm going through my uh, psychic defense checklist of, of debrief from expectations, you know, deep breathing, you know, before going in uh, the sensory deprivation tank and just kind of calming. And that really helped. So then we get there, and uh, there was a cup. There was a, the couple. One couple had a third with them, and they went off as a trio. And then the other couple went off, and I was on my own. So it was really, yeah, 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 ideal. Uh, and so I was thinking though about access. And I had moved from the geographic logistics, gas, money, costs, those issues of access, to then how many people get to go, and also the, the, the capability you need to walk around. Ironically, uh, the, the surfaces are immaculately flat and level, immaculately, the walking surfaces. But they are gravel, so I don't know how a wheelchair person or you know someone with you know there are some very very strict yeah, not up to, disability not up to limitations code. structurally built in. No, well, fundamentally not. So I was I started asking myself, you know, is that an issue for me? Where do I I you know I thought this is interesting that here I, I am aesthetically you know really if not overwhelmed, intrigued. It's a beautiful valley. The weather is perfect. There's a three-quarter moon already sort of, you know, I know it's going to get intense by the time we end up leaving. Uh, so this is the start of a real, you know, turn of day and adventure in time in this amazing spot. But I did think about the question of access and how, what this means given our fundamental consumption model of capitalism and society today. So as much as there was visually and, and in terms of sensory data to take in, that was my starting point. So I thought I could throw that back to you because I think that's something 
that we all you know think about all the time in different ways my thoughts on accessibility are that it's obviously a good thing within reason you want to have a wheelchair ramp up to your bank or into the store or into schools places that are heavily trafficked where people have to live where they have to be able to to get around driving around Oklahoma sort of rural Oklahoma you'll drive through small towns which have decidedly not conformed to ADA compliance and it does cross your mind you're thinking what ha what happens when you're on a rascal scooter and you have to get up there it's not really going to work out for you. However, when it comes to works of art, <clears throat> I'm somewhat controversially a little bit less inclined to say that accessibility is a priority, but I would take it even further and say that there are some things that shouldn't even be accessible by somebody like myself that should actually require you to do a bit of... It's, I mean, a good example of this is Hiking the Grand Canyon. I watched this uh, phenomenal documentary called Into the Grand Canyon, and it's about two National Geographic photographers who decide to hike all 700 and whatever miles, because the footpath obviously is much, much longer than, than going by the, by the Colorado River. Um, and it takes them a year. They do it in segments. They have guides. There's this hilarious opening 10, 15 minutes where both of them nearly die of heat exhaustion about three days into their first attempt. And they have to go back, regroup, replan, train a little bit, and then be able to do this. But one of the focal points of the movie is that developers want to build a, a lift from the top of the Grand Canyon to its base right at the spot where the Colorado River and the Little Colorado River fork. And it's a sacred spot for the Navajo who live there. So they're protesting it. They don't want, you know, a big gaudy Disneyland, uh, you know, gift shop and resort and lift in their sacred space. And there's a point where the, the, the developer, who of course is just, you know, slimy, greasy, He's, uh, he's sort of blathering about how, well, I can't get down to the forked path. I'm too old. So you're just saying that I shouldn't be able to do this? This is about accessibility. This is about making it so that people who are not able to can experience something. And isn't it a bit elitist to say that, ever, that this shouldn't be for everyone? And while I was watching the movie, it all clicked because I thought to myself, well, no, no, it shouldn't be for everyone. Everything shouldn't be accessible in the way that a bank is accessible. There are some things that require a bit of work and there's, you know, Chris, there are some things that I'm not gonna be able to do. I'm never going into space, so far as I know. It's too late, I haven't trained properly. I haven't built up the capital to afford one of those, you know, Jeff Bezos, excursions into outer space. So space is off the table for me. But I don't lament that because, and this oddly enough will tie into my imaginative challenges, some constrictions on things make me feel a little bit more free. Taking some options off the table makes me feel a little bit more free. Oh, 
Absolutely. That's the Olipo, uh, you know, the writer group based on the idea of limitations, but goes back to, you know, Kierkegaard, you know, said a, a single spider could be enormously entertaining for mm -hmm. a solitary prisoner, you know. And sometimes I think everyone creative benefits from, from limitation. It's one of the, the techniques I talk about in the, the textbook, uh, A Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination. I think there's no uh, simpler but more uh, effective strategy that, that you could ever employ than some, some enforced limitations. And to then also be improvisational when uh, when things happen to you that's the Solomon Islander approach is that you know it you you, you come prepared for improvisation and so it's less enforced upon you and something more that you can yeah, you know maybe even so some fun with, to take it to know. the city um, I feel that this is a 50-year vision of one man a ton of work a ton of money and time has gone into creating it and it's you know it's very unfortunate that it's not accessible to some but I don't I don't know what the alternative would be honestly well that's I, I, I think that is the a very good bottom line point because a lot of this deals with uh, bottom lines in the sense of drainage and where water flows and angles of, of road and angles of this and that uh, but there so there is a, a, a structural sort of issue but it did make me think about accessibility in in broader uh, and murkier terms in terms of uh, understanding and connection and then I also thought, well, what does accessibility mm -hmm. mean mm -hmm. for yeah. writers? You know, I mean, there you don't have, uh, you could get around all of the, uh, the sensory uh, impairment issues that we know of pretty effectively today. You know, there are lots of options for that. But that doesn't mean that people have the intellect or the imagination or the capability really of gaining access. I think you know, there are a lot of books that, that, you know, even people who, you know, like us, who think we're smart, we feel, you know, it's, I mean, how much access do, do people really right. have That's to Finnegan's Wake, you know? I mean, it, so I, I, was, I was thinking about that. And then before I got to, and all, because it's always in the back of my mind, the scale of what we're looking at physically which is a pretty intense thing in and of itself, if that could exist, you know, nowhere, uh, which is then gets to whole questions of context and physical location. But the valley is, is pretty intense. So there's a lot of visual uh, stimulation to really just groove with and also, you know, it raises its own questions. But I... It was hard to get past the fundamental thing, which would apply to uh, a work of anything at any size. So it, it gets through the issue of scale as, as massive and immediately physically important as that may seem. It applies to something you can hold in your hand. The difference between a completely unique 
we could use that term, unique object, if we could use that term, and I have a lot of hesitation <laughs> about mm -hmm. that term, but you know what I mean. The difference between something like that and something that is mass-produced. I mean, we are so embedded, not just in a matrix, but a, a, a quicksand of mass production. We have no way to process that idea anymore. That is now the background that anything else seems exceptional by. We almost see it in mm -hmm. relief. You know what I mean? Because, oh shit, you know, this isn't mass produced. I mean, we may not even, that thought may even only dimly form from time to time because it's so against the grain of conventional perception and the social grid of reality that we have, you know, that we accept because we want to be seen as sane, you know? So that got me right there of how, because I, I kind of knew that, that I was going to go on a time travel thing because of the nature of the day and the, and the location and the movement, the dramatic exposure of the movement of the sun and the shadows. I knew there was a, going to be a manipulation of that as part of the, the motivation for the structure. But I, I really didn't think I was going to then jump to uh, physical scale, mm -hmm. you know? I thought that was going to overwhelm me and that I was going to award too many points sure. for no, it. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the spectacle At all? Does that it, make any sense? You, know, you didn't want to get caught up in that and allow that to color your critical perception of the whole thing. I get it. I get where you're coming from. Um, I love what you said about the mass production of things and how that has changed how people look at art and and everything. The putting it in terms of you know, it's almost in relief. Like you notice when a film like Too Old to Die Young comes out and it's you know it's ten hours long and very slow and plotting and difficult and doesn't do anything that you want it to do. It's, it shocks people. And I think that it might take some time, but I think people need to be shaken up just a little bit. Because this mass-produced, populist style of art making, we, well, we can see the results right now. It makes everything into crap. And in order to make it as an artist, you have to try to find a way to... To you know, use your own voice to communicate with people who are used to just digesting crap all the time. I'm finding this a lot with my. I'm, I'm studying books that that sell very well because I'm kind of on a quest. I'm on a quest to write a bestseller at some at some point. It's going to be a long a long journey, right? But I'm on a quest <laughs> to figure this out. A long, a long strange, strange trip. trip and I think the parameters yeah. of the jury, the rules of the whole thing are that I'm not allowed to compromise my artistic, my voice or my artistic sensibilities to achieve bestseller status, but I'm allowed to, you know, absorb and utilize every other tool in the toolkit to try to get there, you know? And what I'm finding is that 
<clears throat> you know, in order, but these books that make it, well, they're just not good. They're just not good. But the implication of that is that the stuff that's just not good is what people in mass, the kind of mass that would make a book, uh, say a USA Today bestseller, they, that's what they want, right? So it's an interesting experiment, one that I'm, I have no delusions about succeeding at, but we all need like one delusional goal, I think. One delusional goal keeps us going. Um, I think that's completely fair. And I, you know, if you, along the way, along the, the, the by the side of the road of this immense journey that uh, I think you've shown great courage in just announcing it. Um, but I think a, another kind of, of masterpiece could evolve. And it would be like um, a take on Dante's divine comedy. Mm, it would be mm. a demented comedy. And it would be <laughs> illustrated by Banksy. That would be cool. That would be cool. I, I think it. that that I could, could but develop. yeah, the ten, so the, that could the tension between accessibility and and the original artistic vision of the thing, um, the the scope of it, the isolation of it, it's all a completely different art form than one that I'm in right now. But one that's really resonating for me in your telling of it and in the pictures that I've seen. Um, because that is one path. Michael Heiser's path was to carve out literally carve out a world for himself where he got to to make this land art that he that was a, a kind of full expression of what was inside of him and that's so fascinating to people who are able to do that fascinate me right who, who are able to to sort of bend the the, the world in a sense to their to their vision it's hyper compelling stuff to me Yes, it is. It really is, truly. Uh, and that was the state of mind and being that I kind of got to of, of real, you know, like one of your tuning mm -hmm. forks. I, I really felt uh, there, were, there were vibrations. And I'll, I'll just throw out a few things before I then split to two major different ways to look at this. And then... I can at least outline some of the the, to the topics that I think are worth a little bit more exploration for next time, if we run out of time. Um, when I started looking around, I noticed there was considerable, subtle, but nonetheless unrelenting horizon management, if you know what I mean, in terms of the the, the levels of land and the curves. And it was a very interesting uh, dance or combat, if you like, between the environment of the valley and the city. And I thought that tension was very interesting because it, in, in a way, it speaks to the entire project of what we call technology, man-made things the human-made world. You know, are we trying to fit into the environment 
or are we trying to stand out from the environment, defend ourselves against the environment? You know, there's a lot in that, you know, and what, what do we think of as essentially human? Maybe Robinson Crusoe's footprint in the sand when he sees another footprint, that's one of those sigils that may say an enormous amount about humanity. I, the, the one, I did take uh, a couple of uh, generic photographs, not of the city itself, but I just, things that, that said something psychological to me that I couldn't ignore. And one was a beautiful set of tractor tire tracks in the gravel. Uh, there are not many tracks, and this is another reason why I think that the numbers of people are limited. Uh, there is, it is an absolutely pristine environment. The, the gravel looks like it has been raked, mm -hmm. like a little zen sandbox. It's, it's absolutely compelling in the attentiveness, and it's also off-putting in a kind of extreme OCD way. So again, another tension that I was picking up on. And you've got these beautiful archetypally uh, female curves of walkway and curvatures of hills, which stands out because the mountain ranges that define the valley are very jagged. So you've got these soft undulations of land that are not suggestive of of really anything exactly. They're kind of desuggestions. Whereas you've got, you know, the the mountain range in the distance, which is both uh, female and also mm. harsh mm. and sharp. And so there's a lot of, of sheer geometric influence on psychology that is working. And for me, that was the the real essence of the experience is a real uh, mm. an adventure in time and a rethink of of time. And the closest I can I can come to uh, some sort of analog is, I think, very uh, appropriately from another part of the world, because in a sense, stepping into city is, is stepping out of what is called the Garden Valley. That's the name of it, and aptly named, Garden Valley of, of Central Nevada. You are, you are not uh, exactly uh, situated you know, in that uh, mm -hmm. longitude and latitude. Um, and that's very strange because it's, it, it isn't as if it's some sort of like a, a you know, some god-awful giant resort hotel sticking out in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's not sticking out like a sore thumb. It's sort of receding, if, if you will, into another dimension. And I liken that, my, my analogy is, it's uh, mm -hmm. Arabic music that lack of time signature that is so disorienting to Western ears at first. You know, and Paul Bowles and people like William Burroughs have commented on that. It's just, it, it's a really uh, disconcerting and enormously rewarding yeah. psychological experience to, to mm -hmm. sort of get through that barrier, you know, and, and realize, okay, my sense of orientation is just, I, I'm gonna have to go with yeah. some other program. Yeah. I'm going to have to put that on hold. 
And I think that is a beautiful uh, achievement that Heiser really should be applauded a, for absolutely because i i I'll, I'll get to some yeah, reservations but that is amazing quote that uh inhabited architecture isn't uh, it's not like an inert space he says that it translate it trans what is the word that i'm looking for transcends there we go transcends uh geometric space that's what like the fact that this is a journey in, into time in a sense that's the kind of that's the vibe I'm getting. And then, uh, you know, you talk about the Garden Valley and the horizons. And that reminds me of Rilke when he was talking about trees. And he said, you know, trees are beautiful, but it's the space between the trees that's really sublime. Because it seems like the space between them somehow grows with the tree. So I'm just, those two, as you were talking, those two ideas came. I'm, I butchered both of those, but... I'm pretty sure I have those down. <laughs> no, I think you. I think I, no. I think Rilke is certainly the poet for for this. Uh, I mean, there are there are a couple. Actually, Rilke and John Ashbery. Strangely enough, John Ashbery is. If people have a picture, he was a very very tall, uh, absolutely unmistakable, uh, totally French fluent gay New Yorker, and he was far more at home you know in a book than he was in any kind of public setting except new york or paris and i had to look after him once at a, at a, at a conference a huge event it was it was a little bit like uh, uh the brett easton ellis thing in a different sort of with a different result but the other sort of writers and thinkers to come to mind a bachelor is perfect and i think that is you know, I mean, he wrote several beautiful books, but *The Poetics of Space* is probably the That's one. The only one I've read. He's yeah. best known for, and we we think of that, you know, in terms of, and it's set out in terms of defining constructed space as in rooms and houses and and purposeful space. Uh, but then there is the issue of, you know, the big open spaces of, you know, places like Nevada. Uh, or Central Australia, or parts of China, or Africa, but that that notion of space as being the arena in which the human-made and the natural world is played out, we really don't have that same flexibility or magic or science in terms of time, but we absolutely do in terms of space, and we've deployed that capability in some really really amazing ways and that kind of defines the cultural diversity mm-hmm. of, of the world in many ways the, the, the solutions to those but here you have something that that is not uh, about the physical environment at all necessarily and I was thinking that uh, in addition to Bachelard that people like uh, two thought thinkers or writers came to mind, Borges and Buckminster Fuller, um, as opposed to, say, John McPhee's beautiful mm-hmm. book, Basin and Range, which is a, just some of the best geographical writing and geographical I cultural that writing it that it. I, I know. I haven't Oh, it's it's just it's fantastic, and it it's the kind of thing that would be good preparation. Uh, 
just to flash back to the the uh, the ingredient of the the other people that you're with, the the differences in response just in the driving uh, has a lot to do with how much people have ever gotten out of cities anywhere or into you know the the environment of, of central Nevada. I know that particular area very well, and I've gone up there for many other reasons before. Uh, so, and I live in a landscape that, that's, you know, very similar right out my back door. So my reaction would have been completely different than mm -hmm. someone coming from Manhattan, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so different. And there would be no way to, uh, yeah, talk kind about of standardize that right? response, like, you, which is another, yeah. exactly, exactly. And it goes back to that, um, the photography, the no photography rule. It's not a pretentious fine arts sort of thing. I think it's very practical is that the f any photograph doesn't just diminish the experience. It, it, it misrepresents the experience in, in actual time. But it really would then start to uh, encrust, mm -hmm. you know, the the authenticity of the possible experience with expectation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a frame. You know, it would. It's it's the maybe a frame finally is unavoidable conceptually, but Jesus, you don't want to do that if you can avoid it, and you don't want to put. A pretty simple-minded frame on it, you know, and that's what photography would instantly do. Even by even even the great professional stuff that's already out there, I would make that claim. I I really, I, I felt, I feel that very strongly that 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 is counter to the nature of what Heiser has created. So I think that is a really interesting because we we also say today, well, nothing is real unless it can be photographed. And even knowing that photographs get heavily modified all the time. So we've got this weird obsession with photographic evidence. And yet we know that that uh, either directly rhetorically or just indirectly by the nature of habit mm -hmm. distorts mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. we're seeing. There's also you know? something there that might be too big. I don't want to... And take you too off track but the fact that it took Heiser 50 years to build is a different more geological approach to time and creation than the type of time we're used to which is constantly being snapshotted and interrupted in its own way so it's it would be like a melding of two continuums that aren't supposed to touch yeah yeah well, that's uh, that's actually kind okay. of a good segue into the next thing that I was, uh, was thinking. You know, um, it, the struggle here is with the connection between space and time. We're, we're we're all still struggling with that. But as I was, as I kind of got up to my my rhythm, if you know what I mean, of deciding how fast I was going to walk and what mm -hmm. my plan. You know, if I needed a plan. And there are no signposts whatsoever. You're free yeah. to just wander. But the whole layout is such that I think you're pretty uh, deterministically controlled overall in terms of 
the possibility of getting lost unless you step obviously outside what the city is. There's no fencing because uh, you're on, on, on protected land. But there's not really, you'd have to intentionally try to get lost uh, and you'd really have to leave uh, the confines of the city. So there's a lot of adult responsibility in play here. Um, and no signage about rules and regulations. I mean, it's assumed uh, no animals. I don't, I don't know about the children rule. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but I think that would be not a good environment for children. So that may be another diagnostic to, yeah. you know, if we're thinking about a city. And I do want to get to that at some point, the definition of a city. Um, I tell my students always remember the title of something. It might be have been chosen for a reason. And there is something important there. But here uh, was a way of thinking of my kind of getting up to pace thought in terms of how I would treat this if I could photograph and make movies here. And I completely bypassed anything that was suggestive of uh, what might generally be called surreal, you know? I just, I just, that didn't work for me at all. I didn't want to see a Mad Max uh, mm -hmm. demolition derby. Uh, and that might have been a thought that someone would, would have. I, I think that's sort of re What I would have maybe been interested in is a time-lapse uh, documentary style thing of, of maybe just a lots of still images but of the work that was done over the years over that 50-year period how much documentation was there I asked Ed the uh, the guy the driver because he had actually worked on the site over the years uh, and his son one of his sons has so there are a lot of local people who have worked on it in bringing together, you know, highway engineering, road work skills, the mining industry. Uh, I would have liked to have seen a, a kind of ghostly documentary of still images of all of the people who, working on it, you know, the sense of, of a work in progress. It was, it was a little odd to, uh, and I, there was one part where I rounded a curve towards the end where it was kind of like going backstage. There were a few of the earth moving machines and these big drainage conduits and you know, like some that. of the gutsy stuff, you know? And I, I, th I have a feeling some people would have been disappointed by that. I would have said, let's put a curtain over it. But, and the sunlight was beautiful on it. There was this one derrick sort of thing, you know, and it looked like it had, had a ramp for sorting gravel, and there's this stack of, of the, the uh, wire mesh things they drag, you know, to, to level a surface, but they could, you know, kind of industrial fishing equipment almost stacked up, and the sun was hitting it so beautifully at, the, at, the, at the, just that time as I was walking past. And I thought, you know, that's, that's part of the whole thing here too because it's so manicured there there isn't even uh, a weed well there is one kind of weed that I, that I did allow myself this is another photograph I took because it could have been anywhere but it was significant because it looks like a, a miniature sort of uh, 
cactus from Venus. It's really disturbing. They're, they don't grow too big, fortunately, and they, they're not a, a cactus, but they're some sort of weird, I, I should know the name, they're a weird uh, sci-fi desert growth. And there are quite a few of them just outside the city, so there's no surprise why there'd be one little tendril or tuber you know, sticking up through the gravel. But the shadow that it casts, too, I thought, well, that's, that's all part of it. And it was, to me, it was that sort of improvisational note or the larger natural world intervening in a way that is obviously not what Heiser want. I mean, that will get cut off as soon as someone, you know, discovers it on their inspection. So there is a kind of an OCD quality to what's going on. And I don't think that is entirely uh, coincidental. I think it's something to do with the nature of our moment in human history. I think it says something about Heiser's inner psychology. I mean, sure, it would have to be a mixture of OCD, just incredible determination. I mean, to be working like that over 50 years, uh, to have endured bankruptcy from time to time, and then taking roadworks jobs, and then hustling with rich people in the art world, and having, you know, comings and goings, and he's been damaged physically, welding and inhaling dangerous fumes, and he's been hurt, and, you know, it's just the incredible fortitude and persistence uh, is not what you would say falls within the normal, yeah. you know, spectrum of Yeah, of $40 million dollars health, to raise. You know, to, it just, you just wouldn't. Well, it's, it, it, it really is, uh, well, here it raises another interesting question, and I really wanted to pitch this one to you because I think it connects Nevada with Oklahoma, and it takes us back to one of our original uh, topics of the outsider artist. I, I did look at this, and I thought there is something hermetic about this creation, there are precedents in the outsider art world of the Watts Towers and uh, the Ideal Palace in France. And, you know, there are these kind of religious shrines and theme parks that are land art or constructed land art. And there, so there is, a, and those are considered part of the outsider art world. And I wonder, I, you know, I don't think that Heiser would be considered. I don't know if it's fair because he's been on the cover of Art News. So I thought that was was interesting. The other touchstone is should he be considered maybe a really eccentric Nevada mm. rancher? Yeah. You know, so that's I've kind of got outsider art in Oklahoma as maybe reference points for it. Because I think you could say that a lot of, you know, there, there are people like that in Oklahoma. You think, well, hmm, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's, there are people doing interesting windmill sculptures and all, you know, it's, it's a thing. So what do you think about good, that sort of angle? Outsider art, eccentric rancher. He's a music video director here in Oklahoma City. Uh, his parents live way out in the country. And they are currently 
engaged in a Heiser Light-esque project to build a, a, an enormous pyramid in Oklahoma. And there was a time before Rios became pregnant that I was genuinely asking him to hook me up with the gig to go out there and help them build a pyramid. So I think that what's really interesting about the connection between outsider artists and you know maybe eccentric rancher is that the outsider nature of it necessarily implies a second job, lifestyle, career. It's almost as if the outsider artist, the, the fundamental thing that makes them the outsider artist is that art is secondary to a kind of practice or lifestyle. I think that's a really cool way of looking at it when you're thinking about you know, the throne of the third heaven, you have a guy who is a, a janitor, right? James, was it Hillman? Is it Hill, James? Hampton, right. Uh, Hampton, you yeah. You have somebody who, who has, whose life is based around this other career, but then also has a project going on that makes them obsessive and they want to do nothing with their free time but that particular piece of art. But yeah, there is just there does seem to be the implication then that an insider artist is somebody who doesn't get out very much. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that that uh, I mean Heiser really has that sort of involvement with. I mean, although I did a kind of oral history at the gas station. Uh, you know, fast food place, which is sort of the crossroads of the town, um, and they had to Sinclair stations, and they had these two huge green, you know, brontosauruses out the front, and a huge Halloween display. A wonderful counterpoint, you know, a sort of a Walmart counterpoint to the extreme minimalism of city. Um, but what? Um, so he is connected with the community. The, the, the oral history that I was doing kind of indicated that, you know, the cashiers, of course, had no idea what I was talking about. But some of the, the men sitting down eating uh, knew what was going on, or they knew somebody had worked on it. So it's this interesting split between who's actually been engaged in the building, you know, the cooperative building of this, because it has been a huge cooperative effort. At, at great expense, you know, he, Heiser has paid these people, you know. Um, so there's there's that whole insider-outsider art thing, which this is definitely a very successful comment on, you know. It doesn't have an answer to that, but it certainly raises those questions and, and gets the thing rippling and oscillating backwards and forwards so that you, you have all sorts of conflicted feelings, as I, I think we should. Um, but here's how I ended up as I was walking, uh, which is, you know, the peripatetic sort of a Walking is so good for thinking. Uh, what my, I flashed to not just outsider art, but, but the, the, the kind of outsider art that we, we see a fair bit of in trailer parks, and some of my neighbors in my community have gone down this path of 
Yeah, it might be outsider art, or it might be just extreme kitsch, you know? But the thought occurred to me that city is, is so minimalist, so uh, barren, if you really wanted to put that term on it, which I think would be unfair, but not entirely. It makes anything mm. seem mm. like kitsch. Anything. It isn't just the Sinclair dinosaurs and the weirdo Halloween thing, or uh, fine art hanging in you know a Los Angeles or New York gallery. That that also looks like kitsch, mm. relatively speaking. You know, it's and that really. Uh, that got me thinking, and it ties back into um, what you were saying about the bowling ball and the color black, and how uh, certain experiences can, at the perceptual physical level, but certainly at the, the, uh, the green darkness level of psychology, just completely invert so fully it, it's it's almost telescopic you know it's like looking at the wrong end of a telescope and city does that i think as a weird uh parallel universe counter to two uh locations in nevada that i i mentioned i think that need to be thought of because they you can triangulate and i don't think that's a, a coincidence you could triangulate on a map i mean literally between Area 51, another, you know, supposedly top secret facility, <laughs> which everyone in the world knows about, and an enormous mythology has grown up around that's almost inescapable. Uh, I mean, everyone knows the, the variety of possible aliens that may be cooperating with some sort of clandestine version of the government you know, hundreds of miles below Groom Lake in tunnels that we can only dream of. But we do dream about them, and we have pictures of them, and we've been on that journey, even though that may be a complete, <laughs> at least strange, uh, fantasy world. But then to the north, Burning Man, which has a lot of the same aesthetics possibly at work, it comes out of the same vintage of thinking, a kind of Aquarian thinking. It's a good word uh, for it, yeah. Maybe, but maybe also a, a, a sort of uh, post-apocalypse feeling. There's a strange Day of the Dead ambiguity about Burning Man, a celebration. It's, you know, it's atavistic futurism. It's, it's conflicted. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. But talk about access. You know, I was looking at a, an aerial photograph of the fully assembled, and it is quite a beautiful visual design from 10,000 feet, but I think it looks a lot more beautiful as a design from above than it does, you know, at the chaos at, you know, playa level. Although it's, you know, a lot of people really, you know, groove on it. You know, it's still a cult and will, uh, you know, continue on after COVID. But it is, it is not some, it's not even the reverse. It's some sort of black hole version of City, or City is that to it, because it's all about that mm. not happening there, you know? 
we don't want topless women on acid and you know flamethrowers and you know even gorgeous spectacle we don't want spectacle we want to be monolith that is the absence of spectacle and that is a head twist and he really did, does pull that off um, but you have to I think it's like people who would uh, pay to go on a kind of uh, spiritual retreat where fasting would mm -hmm. be the prerequisite you know and some people go why would you do that why would you pay not to eat and yeah. that's a very <laughs> fair question and I think that would be why uh, access in very physical terms is restricted because at some point it would become you know the, like the giant ball of twine or something it would just be a roadside destination and there'd be uh, I have a uh, a terrible thing to confess but I think I should that at some of these ghost towns that are preserved in arrested decay I love that expression that is a great band name arrested decay I have had over the years uh, photographs of the most extreme uh, tourists looking you know the the worst Bermuda shorts the biggest bellies, the, the most cellulite, the most extreme uh, examples, um, walking artifacts of, of 20th, now 21st century decadence, uh, in my view, you know, contrasted with these uh, ghost town backdrops that I think are sensational. And those are the, that's the kind of scene that I think he really wants to avoid and there's only one way to do that is just to limit the number of people who get to actually experience uh, the whole phenomenon and as part of that sound plays an important role in the experience and I was thinking about that if I were I, I wanted to do sound sculptures you know like sound gardens because I'm very into that kind of thing. That would be what I would do if I could raise, you know, money to do in a sculptural sense or an environmental artist sense. But total silence is also a musical statement, and I have not experienced in America that complete a silence. And I've really gone looking for it. And I, where I live, I mean, it's it's very noisy with birds and coyotes, and I'm not talking any human sounds at all. Um, I mean, even, you know, something really beautiful like a western meadowlark just going for it. I mean, it's just constant here. Um, but there was nothing, and I was really stunned by that until just on exactly 15 minutes to sunset, way overhead, there were sounds that were not commercial jetliners. They were something more exotic and they were headed back to base mm. at Area 51 and that was just the perfect musical cinematic convergence that I could possibly have imagined because the sound the absence of sound which is completely contradictory to the, uh, the notion of city 
And I think that might be where we just need to begin next episode with a, a, a meditation on the concept of city because that does have a lot to do with our topics about individual psychic experience and cultural psychic experience, how we negotiate that, how we get lost and alienated in it, how we can sometimes thrill to it and, and also then feel completely alienated in a situation like Garden Valley and Heiser City. Um, so it was really that, that sense of, of, of sound and uh, that put me really into uh, a deep meditative state that I found quite remarkable to be enjoying while walking around. And I think that is very hard to experience. I think there are very few places and moments in life where we can be, presuming we don't have a, a toddler or a, you know, someone to look after, or we're just, just on our own, but where we can really walk and meditatively, hypnotically disconnect. I mean, that is a real privilege to be able to do that. And that, again, is, is part of the, the achievement. that, uh, And it's in, in conflict with some real important points to mention because uh, I was thinking of one of my smartest art friends and uh, she's a Brooklyn uh, art historian who her idea of, of art and architecture is Firenze, you know, Florence. And, and she would have called City, I think, uh, she would have renamed it as Overflow Parking. and. Uh, part of me thinks that there's a, a kind of a fairness to that. Um, but that just wasn't my experience. And I think that, that the boundary line between the structural landform uh, construction and psychic experience, that boundary line, you know, shifted or at least got me thinking of a lot of questions and um, I want to leave us with one as because I think it's too big an archetypal idea and I am thinking archetypally here there is something that is in my view fundamentally masculine about what Heiser has done and in a sense that there's no, that shouldn't be contentious really at all. I mean, he is male. It's earth moving work, traditionally male, uh, as a skilled trade profession, knowledge base. There are a lot of things that shouldn't be contentious about that. But I think it should be because there is a strange uh, contrast between the, the very uh, sensual curves an organic nature of the design and then the absolutely uh, harshly geometric uh, right-angledness of the the major structures and I will say that that there there are not as many as one would think it, it is an enormous abstraction and that may be the, the biggest point about it is that we may ask of, you know, can a city be abstracted? I think it can in two dimensions is perhaps the skyline, 
you know, rather like the waveforms of, of sound, which, you know, you can look at as you're recording anything, including this podcast. Uh, but when you think of a city with its swarming markets and teeming, you know, those kind of <laughs> words come to mind. And so when COVID hit, it was very, very haunted. It became a lot of ghost cities. But if it's not a ghost city, what, is, what does abstraction look like? Does that inherently mean that you get a kind of ghostly or graveyard quality? Uh, and that's another sort of, of, of takeoff point for next time. And I think that connects on a lot of fronts to the larger question of minimalism and the notion of abstraction and what is lost in those processes processes and and what is uh that's well in fundamental conflict with the notion of loss and editing and excision but is in fact just the opposite and a, a very vigorous if not ferocious statement of presence and and so therefore the notion of the abstract and the concrete or detailed is is maybe deeply in error you know where does intricacy become simplicity those kinds of questions um, I'd still like to explore next time because I think they're much bigger than this one section of Nevada land but they are a tribute to to what Heiser has has done I I think that we should always remember that maybe the value of our thinking is not the the answers we find but the the interesting quality of the questions that we raise you know and that's I think maybe a good place to leave city for the moment uh, with the sun going down the exotic aircraft or our back home at Area 51 and darkness is descending uh, and we'll get to now your response to well, that your imaginative challenge. I, uh, I enjoyed every minute of that and I'm looking forward to the sequel next week. That was uh, man, I took so many notes, so much to think about. I think this one really unlocks some stuff. On the subject of my imaginative challenge, so people can look however they want. This raises some fundamentally profound questions. What happens when people can change not just their gender, but now their race as well? That's something, that is the very first yes. thing that came to yes. my mind because assuming this is our world with our past, a lot of Yes, a lot yes, of that's good, that's good. The social interactions and social conflicts that we have are based upon racial historical trauma and the fallout from that, the fallout that continues to go on to this day and the exploitation of the fallout and on and on and on. But the question becomes, obviously, this would be a very taboo thing to do. I think that we would suddenly see the brakes pumped in a way that they are decidedly not pumped when it comes to gender. <laughs> if all of a sudden you could change your race, because how would you know anymore? 
how would you know? Is that person, is, are they a black person now? Because they look black? Like, how oh. would you know? If somebody were to find yeah. out, it would be a scandal, right? It would be Rachel Dolezal times 100 to find out. But if nobody found oh, out, yeah. you could reinvent yourself whenever you wanted. Which brings me to canceling. You can't cancel somebody if they can change the way that they look. <laughs> you know, if they can invent an entire new identity and pull a Mission Impossible through this technology, canceling really just becomes bankruptcy for social capital, right? You just start over again. Seven years later, you're back, new face, new personality, new backstory, and you get it going again. I think that. Another interesting aspect of this is that obviously there would be some people who absolutely did not want to participate in this. And there would be a kind of premium put on the natural. And we would really have to start looking at what the word natural even means. Because what does it mean? to Is it a badge of honor now to grow old? Assuming again that this technology doesn't repair the internal organs and that people still die but they don't have to look old would some people choose to be old and also i think that we talked about mass produced items and what you what you're talking about with this technology now is mass produced people because a lot of people would choose to look like brad pitt or angelina jolie or whoever the hot people are now. I'm not really up on that, to be honest with you. But when you have the option of mass-produced people where everybody looks good, what exactly happens to our sexual preferences when it's in abundance? Because it's, it's the rarity that's interesting, right? If everybody has a video game character creator, but most people are going to choose to have you know, big boobs or big butt or dudes are gonna have big muscles, do we even value those things anymore? So it's a kind of accelerationism of physiognomy that I think would really make people have to start questioning what actually is valuable. Some people, of course, right? Because as we've seen with mass-produced items, some people don't care. You can feed them the, the soma, the slop, right? They, they'll take it, they, they don't care. But I think it would freak mm. a lot of people out. And finally, I wanted to right. put a little twist on this that I thought would be interesting. So in this hypothetical technology, I'm seeing it as some sort of you know, glass tube full of liquid where nanobots are sort of reconstructing the way that you look. Um, I think it would be really interesting if they found out you can only do it three times. And the fourth time, the strain is too much on your, on your body and you just explode, you just come apart in pieces. So it would be interesting to think about with a limit imposed upon it. You can change the way you look three times, and then that's it. Because some people would change three times in a year, and then they'd be like, "Well, well, I, got, I was getting, I was just getting a roll. I almost had it perfect, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite get it there in time." And then you'd have some people who would go to black market, look changing doctors. Who assure them like oh yeah if you hand me 20k that three that three times thing is just a myth you'll be fine and then they put them in the chamber they cash their check and move on uh 
But those are the points that are very interesting to me. The race relations, the accelerationism of, of physiognomy, the sameness of everything, creating uh, more psychic dissonance. And what it would take to be the kind of person who would not engage in this. Because I, I wouldn't. I don't think I would. I think I'm just fine the way that I am. I think people would find out very quickly that looking the way that they want to look doesn't change anything on the inside at all. Well, that would be phenomenally interesting if that were recognized, you know, finally is true, because isn't that one of the first uh, socially constructed ideas that, that really, you know, it's what's inside, wherever that is, that counts. And that is, of course, the mind-body problem put into social uh, frames, you know. There's so much that's interesting about uh, your response. I think that, um, I, I think it's fascinating that the, the, uh, the contrast between uh, two great, you know, issues of our time, race and gender, and, and how you ended up prioritizing those. And I think that that has some uh, echo uh, or expression in how the media is handling uh, the two issues and the attention given and the difficulty in uh, in talking about one or both in different ways uh, there's there's a lot that, that that could be unpacked there and I think that prioritizing race there might be very wise in social terms um, or insightful because I think that is sort of um, the more complex issue um, strangely, I don't know if that's, you know, that that that's not necessarily intuitive. I don't think, um, but it's worth more more discussion. But the the big takeout that I got is I think there was a beautiful, and this is part of the whole process, from the very first words you said through to the end, um, of an example of inference and extrapolation which are central to my definition of what intelligence really means and what we should be looking for and, and diagnosing in, in any kind of uh, evaluation, evaluation sort of mechanism. Uh, because it's, you really took some interesting steps that, you know, for instance, the people who wouldn't uh, go along with this would be naturals, you know, and the different social values around them. Now that's, that's really complicated thinking and I think that this is where a good way to understand the difference between human intelligence as of now and, and artificial intelligence even as it's you know gotten more sophisticated that AI is still savant as they say it's still crunching uh, algorithms it's still doing things on a calculative computational sort of basis Whereas the kind of inference and extrapolation that, that you were demonstrating, that is not really capable of uh, computation and algorithm. It's more like uh, idiomatic expressions that have to be understood whole. You, know, you can't logically break them down and, and they just don't make sense. You either understand them as a whole phrase or you don't. And in a way, I think that's what this... Uh, 
the human social side because you made some some interesting comments about what would be you know what would be the objects of appeal if now they're standardized and this I think is a way of also getting to one of the biggest paradoxes of this particular moment in history we have never had the word diversity used as such a mantra today I mean it's just everywhere you turn and yet we have never never experienced the level of standardization and consistent mass production on all levels that we have today you know never absolutely I have never thought about that but that's that's wonderful mass production of shoes TV book everything food ideas you know ideas yeah, exactly but you know? but then at the same time it's oh it's all about diversity yeah the race thing is just it's really interesting to me because one of my favorite you know every once in a while there will be a talking point on the left or the right and you'll hear it and it'll be it'll just sound goofy to your ears and one of those is when the transgender debates come up when a, a person on the right says, well, what about if I want to be transracial? And you're, my immediate thought about that is, oh, that's stupid. But then you start to think about it, and you're like, well, is it actually stupid, though? What if? What if I felt like I was meant to be a different skin color or culture? Why isn't that okay? Besides it being tacky, right? You can definitely say that it's it would be tacky or gauche, kind of like when, you know, there was a big thing in the '90s of you know white kids dressing up in FUBU and, you know, speaking AAVE, and everybody recognized that as being tacky, even though I have a special place in my heart for them. But, uh, but besides <laughs> it being tacky, like, but doesn't it logically follow that you could do that? Well, it, it seems a, a perfectly fair question to ask because I think almost any question should be fair to ask. Uh, I don't see the harm in, in that, but that's one of the, the problems that we face is the mass-produced idea that there are certain questions that we can't even you know, look at. But here's a way to... Uh, respond to that and and carry it into Heiser City for next episode because I think that your response which was interesting on so many levels but particularly the race aspect reflects an American point of view especially I think that is a very very uh, there's a telltale a manufacturer's signature <laughs> on that, you know? Yeah. There's a VIN number on that idea. And it, it's made in America. It isn't exclusive to America, but it was made in America. And I think that that's a way of asking the question about, I mean, it's another contextual question about city, because it appears to be on a very specific geographical and geological footprint within the Garden Valley of Nevada uh, within Nye County or Lincoln County and yet 
you might, if you were in my situation lucky enough to go there, have stepped out of that frame entirely. And I did have one moment of, of flash on, and I, it's kind of a nice myth and legend, but I believe it is true that every international airport has what would appear to be a physical space on its property, but that space is not sovereign land. It is outside of, of the nation. Uh, I don't know if this is true for every, every country. I doubt it. But I know I've heard this from uh, people within the intelligence community that this is definitely part of every major U.S. airport. That it's kind of like a, an embassy. It's not on U.S. soil. It's conceptually its own place, its own world. And I, I think those are fascinating. You know that idea of conceptualizing physical space in a way that almost uh, overrides the physicality of, of the space. So that's another sort of, um, but yeah, that, I, I loved your response. I think that raised a lot of interesting ideas, but for, if anyone wants to you know, hear that back, David's performance of inference and extrapolation. Uh, yeah, I mean, you may not agree necessarily with his conclusions, but the process is so fundamental and it, it's often missing in even some of our best writers and creators of worlds. But I think when we have get it, gotten enthralled with worlds, whether it be in books or gaming or film, and, or any time we use that word, an imaginary world, the, the authenticity and validity and believability comes from that, that skill uh, of, and that intuition of inference, of working from a premise and a set of details to social implication. What would that look like in the world? This is what we're missing in our futurists and why we have a whole category of yesterday's tomorrows, which are kind of uh, whimsical and often you know, grotesquely in error. I, it's very difficult. Inference and extrapolation are really uh, magical science art forms that are, are not encouraged by no. our no. educational systems. Uh, but we should be encouraging yeah, that in each yeah, other. Yeah, and so, you know, well if done you want to hit me with a tsunami of hate mail, that's fine too. I'm kind of used to it by this point. Doesn't really. You have to get thick skin if you want to uh, say things that you think, especially in this day and age. It's very strange because it never really used to be that way. You used to just kind of be able to have this tone where people could sense that you were in the. Uh, you know, interrogative, it's the word that I'm looking for, pontificating mode of, and that as such it should be all be taken with, you know, thought, but maybe a grain of salt, you know, like the, the things that you say not being firm declarations of where you stand on the social issues of the time, but I don't want to rant too much about that. Um, you have a tool and a tip for us today? Yeah, I do. Uh, my my tool is is a call to action, because I think it's something that just needs a great deal of thought. But I will be able to distill it down into uh, a call to action. I flashed back onto I've been 
I think you can sort of gather, I've been a heavy sort of reflecting on the nature of physical perception. Uh, visiting city, I've been doing some, uh, a lot of artwork, uh, and really just thinking about how physical perception influences psychological experience and, and really trying to unpack that and slow that process down to look at it. But I, I flashed back to uh, one of the, the bits of advice or wisdom the Solomon Islands people tried to pass on to me. And it sounds so simple, and yet I think it has such resonance. And they said, what you can't see is right behind you. And I think that's a very puzzling way of looking at things that are presumably invisible full stop and you know like concepts and ideas but that preposition and again I'm, I'm very conscious of prepositions of how, how those frame and direct our th and, pre and kind of predetermine our thinking you know but if you say something is right behind you you're immediately addressing the physical vision and the forward-looking nature of the face, the eyes. You're, you're accepting the body as some sort of fundamental truth, which is you know, another point of real contention at this moment in time, and it was what your imaginative challenge was about. I mean, how much of, of our reality is rooted and fundamental to our bodies, the, a certain size, certain scale, mass, and a certain pace of, of living and perception, you know? Get back to the body, as, or as John Lee said, in case of emergency, you will be returned to your body. Um, but think about what that preposition behind might mean. That's the tool. Try to, when, when you hit a, any sort of phrase, particularly if it seems to be a bit of advice or an assertion, don't just dismiss it because it sounds easy to understand. Actually try to take it apart. Because what would be behind you? Where else do we put use that? Well, we think about it in terms of time. You know, the past is behind you. Don't look back, you know? We, that metaphor really, you know, is very, very influential in our experience of time. What you can't see is behind you. Well, that, you know, <laughs> that calls to mind a whole lot of uh, possible, you know, steps. You know, well, then turn around or, you know. But certainly think about prepositions and think about very weighted, freighted ones, like behind, before, beyond, the, the big ones. They're big for a reason, you know, because of the influence they have on our physical perception and our larger sense of, of reality. And here is my tip, which kind of builds on this. And it's, it's very crystal radio in the sense of, you know, do some stuff at home with your hands. Get to taking apart some metaphors physically. And coming away from Heiser City as I was driving alone through the darkness of central Nevada, even though there was a bright moon out, it's pretty dark out there. 
I thought about the expression a house of cards, you know, and there is an anxiety, one of the theories of the great anxiety of, of the modern age is that all of our civilization is really just an illusion, a house of cards, uh, that we're really, you know, still savages and that this is all a kind of abstract system that's been developed from debt and credit and insurance to new machines and it's just all, it could all come to a halt the moment someone pulls the plug on the electricity, you know? That's the, that's the fear, isn't it? That's what drives post-apocalyptic fascinations and everything. But think about the difference between something that really is an illusion or a delusion and a house of cards. And I realized that I have never in my life actually tried to make a house of cards. And I, at that moment, looked down in my desk drawer and I saw that I have a pack of cards. And they're one of two. I've got ones with uh, pictures of Death Valley and ones from uh, Africa with some cool African designs. So I started to try to make a house of cards. And I thought to myself, how much more physical could anything possibly be? It's delicate, but it needs vigor and, and decisiveness, you know? Uh, it, it's a fantastic expression of the physical nervous system working its way into the world and responding to minute changes. It's intense. It's intense. So here we have this cliche, a house of cards, and it's been, you know, names and the title's been used many times. We just kind of dismiss it. It's a package puff phrase. But then we also confuse it with an illusion. And that's completely wrong. That isn't what it meant even as a cliche, you know? So unpack some stuff. But get using your hands, because the more uh, mental and cerebral and intellectual you are, uh, the more you realize, or will come to realize, how much a part of that your hands are. You know, it's so. And with that, you're breaking down some some metaphors and and re resuscitating some cliches and getting a little bit more of a handle on all of the assumptions that we're all Perfect. suffocating within. Excellent. You Do know? you have a dream to take us out on? I do, I do. And it's an example of uh, a personal moment of getting a little bit of insight to perceptual pacing. I've mentioned that, that word and that process a few times. It's very much on my mind lately because I think it has everything to do with also our association with, with space and how we're relating to context. Physical space as, you know, in an architectural thing like Heiser City, but social space, connecting with other people. We're also working on the basis of pace, terms of language and process of communication and our sense of time. Uh, responsibility, our sense of aging, you know, within the larger social idea of history, on and on and on. Pacing is, is really so important. 
I happened to uh, find in a shirt pocket uh, a decal sticker made by an art friend of mine who uh, has been very important when I first arrived uh, in America and Vegas. And I've kind of lost sight track of for some reasons that connect to uh, some of the issues that, that we've talked about on the show in terms of, of syndromes, of, of derangement and ideological division that has, I think, we've kind of said has hit the arts community, communities very hard and fragmented a sense of community. So I haven't been in touch with him, and I think that's kind of maybe been guiltily and also sadly on my mind. Uh, but I found this decal, and then I, I, I had uh, a nap, and I was surprised at how intense the nap was. I had been working very late the night before, and that might have caught up with me. But... I had a dream about this this friend figure, and I have not ever, uh, despite, you know, some people just don't end up in your dream life. But it was very, very decisive what the what the you know the the situation was. We were on the way to an airport to stage some kind of terrorist act that we had already planned. Uh, would end in uh, death, assassination by the authority figures. So it was kind of a planned artistic protest suicide mission. And there was a third figure who was kind of like one of our friends, but was too vague and was obviously an amalgam. But in on the way, I decided that I would not I just wasn't going to lose my life over this protest. And I got out of the car and I was instantly, however, picked up by some sort of police figures. And I only remember, I was, they didn't treat me as exactly as if I was a criminal yet, but they certainly didn't treat me as if I could just go whatever way I wanted to because my first thought was how I was going to get a means of running away. But there was a, a female blonde psychological interrogator person. And what I remember about her was she had a kind of uh, shoulder length haircut that women stopped having, you know, like in 1959. But the odd thing was, and it was so beautiful, it was. It was hideous, but absolutely fascinating. Her face would contract and then re-expand as if it had become a sponge and it was hollow inside and a puppeteer was gripping, clutching, making a fist or clawing and then expanding and opening the hand. And it did that in this beautiful sort of rhythm. And I was scared about being a prisoner. I was wanting to hear about news about my friend if he had gone ahead with the stunt and had been assassinated or whatever. But I couldn't stop watching this woman's face just expand and contract and expand and contract. 
And the rhythm of it was, although the sight was totally disgusting, the rhythm was very satisfying. And I woke up on that note.